We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular ICRT commentator, Ross Feingold. Good evening. And on the telephone by Catagalan Media's Jieting Ye. Good evening as well. Tonight, we'll be discussing the latest election news in a week that was simply jam-packed with it. But we'll begin the first half of this week's show with an interview with Shelley Rigger, in which the respected expert on Taiwan politics shares her opinions about some of the issues surrounding January's elections. Rigger serves as the Brown Professor of East Asian Politics at Davidson College in the United States state of North Carolina, and is currently here in Taiwan at the National Taiwan University as a Fulbright Scholar. And the comments expressed in this interview are her own and do not represent those of either the Fulbright Scholarship or the U.S. government. Good evening, Shelley. Good evening to you. And so we'll begin at the beginning with um, incumbent President Tsai Ing-wen and her main rival, Hang Guo-yu. And what do you think they'll be bringing to the table in terms of domestic policy that's likely to entice voters, especially those who don't follow any one particular party? Well, it's really been interesting so far to see how reluctantly, uh, especially the Thai campaign, is really talking about many of the domestic issues. I know her stump speech is pretty heavy on her domestic performance, some of the economic uh, improvements that Taiwan has seen over the last few years. In her stump speech, Tsai Ing-wen points out that Taiwan's GDP growth rate this year is the best of the four Asian tigers and so on. Um, but, you know, for, for a president who delivered on as many of her domestic promises in the last election, as Tai has managed to, to do, it's a little surprising to me how kind of quiet her campaign is, so far at least, on the domestic issues. And I think that's because a lot of the domestic achievements that she's had were won in fairly controversial um you know, they're fairly controversial issues, and so not everybody is in support. Nonetheless, um, you know, I think she campaigned saying she was going to reform pensions. Um, she campaigned saying we need a new labor law. A lot of people thought that she would do marriage equality, and all of those things have been accomplished. But because they're controversial, you know, they haven't been uh, so front and center in the campaign. So it's more of a kind of, so far, generic you know, we've we've boosted the economy and we will continue to do that going forward rather than um, really hard hitting on those uh, particular concrete achievements. And then on Hangua Yu's side, too, it's been a pretty, um, you know, there are some very concrete offers or, or promises made, like uh, every college student gets a, a free year in the U.S., something like that. Um, but Again, they're actually pretty vague, and on the economic front, it's more of a, you know, I know how to get things going again with the PRC, and the PRC is where our economic future lies, so trust me to do that. Um, So, you know, we haven't seen the kind of really concrete proposals that may yet emerge um, before the election, but um, might not make that big of a difference to most voters anyway. Right. What about the personalities of both of the main protagonists there? I mean, Tsai Ing-wen's personality versus Hang or Yu's personality and how that could attract voters. Right. So I think that's why we probably are not hearing so much about issues is because uh, 
the image of these two candidates is just so radically different that I think uh, both candidates are kind of counting on winning over voters with their personality or their kind of their approach rather than um, thinking that people are going to really be paying close attention, at least at this stage in the campaign, to very concrete and specific policy proposals. So, you know, Tying One seems to be really doubling down on her image and um, the projection that she has always really used, but I think now more than ever, of consistency, stability, calmness. You know, uh, we used to call President Obama in the U.S. people would say, no drama Obama. Well, I think Tying One has definitely exceeded Obama uh, when it comes to no drama. So on the one hand, you have this candidate who is just really putting out an image of calm, consistent, you you know what you're going to get. Um, and then on the other side, Hang Yu is really emphasizing being exciting, being interesting, having new things to say all the time, and really um, speaking his mind, even if it seems like it must, uh, it might not appeal to absolutely everyone. But, you know, there are a lot of voters who are really excited to hear a candidate who is willing to make strong statements and um, speak very plainly. I watched this video recently of, uh, of Han Guoyu, and he said, you know, if, if you're for, for Taiwan independence, then absolutely do not vote for me. And, you, you know, you don't often hear a politician inviting people to vote against him. So I think that kind of um, plain-spoken image is popular with some fraction of voters. We don't really know yet exactly how many, but it is a really, really strong contrast between these two candidates. And I think it will make a big difference. And do you think this clash of personalities will make for very lively presidential debates? You know, I don't know. It might be kind of lively on one side and not very lively on the other. Um, You know, I think it will make for a very clear... um, point of differentiation. You know, the the voters in this election are not going to have any difficulty recognizing the difference between what they're being offered. Right, moving on. If President Tsai Ing-wen wins re-election, pretty much cross-strait ties and U.S.-Taiwan ties are going to be pretty much probably unchanged. But what if Hang Yu wins? How do you see cross-strait ties and U.S.-Taiwan ties actually changing, if at all? So this is really hard to, to know. I think with uh, cross-strait, you know, his, his expectation and, and what he's really holding out to the voters is that cross-strait ties will improve, that the PRC is stonewalling Tsai Ing-wen because they just do not uh, believe that there's any opportunity for common ground with the, with a DPP leadership. And, you know, they just, there's no trust between Beijing and uh, Tsai Ing-wen and, and the DPP more broadly. So that's kind of the starting point for Han Guoyu. Then from there, he says, you know, I will be different. I can... Um, work with them. And there is evidence to suggest that that's true. You know, he has been to China, to mainland China recently. He um, spoke with pretty high 
officials there. He also spoke to representatives of the PRC in Hong Kong during visit to Hong Kong several months ago. So, you know, there's some reason to believe that um, the PRC would be interested in maybe loosening up some of the pressure on Taiwan in order to see what they could do uh, with Han Guoyu. One of the things, though, that leaves me a little bit uncertain is just that, you know, this was kind of supposed to start with Kaohsiung City as mayor. The the promise that he made during the mayoral campaign a year ago was, you know, I'm going to open Kaohsiung to better relations with the PRC. And whether that really would have happened is kind of hard to know because he turned around and started campaigning for the presidency pretty quickly so that the promise of improved Kaohsiung mainland relations didn't really have time to come to fruition before his attention shifted uh, away from Kaohsiung. So I think there are people in Kaohsiung who are now a little bit more skeptical of uh, his you know, ability to make magic with the mainland, but uh, certainly that is there is evidence to suggest that he could make some progress on that front. As far as the U.S. is concerned, you know, he has visited the U.S., uh, but he canceled his visit that was supposed to happen this fall, I think, figuring that it was important for him to stay here and campaign. He's trailing a little bit in the polls and probably didn't want to take time off for that trip. Um, But, you know, I think in the U.S., people will wonder whether that means anything more than just, you know, the, the a U.S. trip in the fall didn't fit into the schedule. He has criticized Tsai Ing-wen for being, for prioritizing the relationship with the U.S. over the relationship with China, suggesting that he might do the opposite. Right, and looking at the legislative elections, I mean, do you see these smaller parties cutting into the support bases of both the DPP and the KMT? You know, I don't think that that there will have a real big effect. For one thing, there are so many running this time around that um, not only do they they just sort of mathematically, you know, the more they are, the more fragmented uh, the small party vote becomes, and so the harder it is for anybody to reach the 5% threshold. But also, I think a lot of voters can see that. And uh, I was, I'm in Taiwan right now doing research on youth attitudes toward various topics in Taiwan. So I hope if any of your listeners are young Taiwanese between 18 and 30, you'll contact me and sign up to be in a focus group um, to be interviewed about this stuff. But uh, last night I was doing a focus group here in Kaohsiung, and there, one of the young people that I was interviewing made a really interesting point. He said, you know, normally I would probably use my party vote for one of the small parties, but this time there are so many small parties that none of them is going to hit the, the 5% threshold, so I feel like voting for any of them is a, is a waste of my vote. So I probably, even though he, this individual was quite ambivalent about the two parties. He's not crazy about either one. He said he'll probably end up using his party vote for one of the major parties. So, you know, I don't know whether that's typical, but I think that logic makes a lot of sense, and he's probably not the only person who's going to think of that. Ryan, what about the youth vote? Obviously, Han Guoyu's had trouble with the youth vote, whereas a lot of young people actually, whether they admit it or not, may be looking towards the DPP. 
Yeah, you know, that's been um, very interesting. So I've spent most of my time here up in Taipei, and it's hard to find young people who are strong supporters of Hanguoyu in Taipei, including actually KMT, younger supporters of the KMT. And there are younger supporters of the KMT, I want to make that clear, and I've talked to a lot of them. Um, but they're, you know, a lot of them are pretty lukewarm at best about uh, Han. And so I was asking the Kaohsiung youth, you know, well, what do you think? Because obviously, you know, uh, Hanguoyu was much, a year ago, was very popular in, in Kaohsiung. And uh, they confirm, by, by and large, that they, too, see a big generation gap. And I think that's um, also in the polling. You know, it's pretty clear that Hanguoyu is much more popular with older voters, especially middle-aged uh, voters, so like 45 to 65, than he is with younger voters. So, And I think that's actually a really interesting development because it kind of suggests that the basis on which younger voters are um, differentiating between these candidates is not necessarily so much partisanship or party preference or even the kind of traditional blue-green as it is some of the social issues on which the DPP has taken a more liberal or progressive um, position and that Han Guoyu is answering the DPP by um, really coming down hard on a more conservative direction uh, on those social issues. And I think that's also driving some of the youth vote toward Taiwan. And that's interesting because, you know, for a long time we've been waiting for Taiwan's electorate to shift from partisanship and the blue-green cleavage to start looking at some of the other issues, economic issues. Uh, but it's interesting to me that it could be the social issues that really matter for the youth vote this time around. And what about the older vote? Yeah, so I think a lot of older voters are really, even some, you know, green voters are, they're pretty unhappy with the positions that the DPP has taken on some of the social issues, especially marriage equality. You know, I think the uh, challenge to tying one in the primary from Lighting to was driven by that kind of more conservative. It was certainly driven a little bit by the, or largely, actually, by the deep green uh, element within the party, feeling like uh, she hasn't done enough, uh, she hasn't been strong enough on the the, uh, independence issue. But also a lot of older DPP voters and a lot of older KMT voters are not happy about marriage equality. We saw that in the referendum. Um, you know, also Lu Xiaolian's, you know, it didn't actually pan out, but her attempt to get into the race has, I think, a lot to do with the sense that, you know, the younger p- part of the DPP is not uh, really headed in the right direction as far as social issues are concerned from the point of view of some older voters. So I think the generation gap may actually transcend partisanship not only for the younger generation, which is being drawn towards Taiwan, but also by the older generation, which is now torn. And, you know, Han Guoyu is really making some headway with older voters by stressing those issues. I heard, 
yesterday that uh, not Han himself, but his wife, who's an important um, spokesperson for for his campaign, was also talking about sex education and the need to roll back some of the uh, sex education or gender education in the primary grades. And again, you know, that's definitely aimed at um, socially conservative older voters. Right. And of course, China meddling. A lot's been said about it. Some people argue that it's happening all the time, while other people argue that, well, Taiwanese voters are more savvy than to swallow Beijing's propaganda and can simply either change the channel or turn off the set if they're being bombarded by it. So what do you think of China meddling in the election? It's going to be rampant or not so rampant as some might have us believe? Yeah, you know, I think I tend to fall into that second camp that says Taiwanese folks are pretty savvy about the threat that they face. You know, they, unlike Americans in 2016, who kind of had no idea that Russians might be trying to interfere in our election, I think most Taiwanese are pretty aware of the possibility that, uh, you know, there will be PRC intervention in many different things that are going on here. Uh, That said, though, you know, that doesn't stop them from trying, and I think that, that there are media outlets in Taiwan that have a pretty high readership and that are certainly more sympathetic toward PRC views, whether or not they are you know, experiencing direct intervention, uh, as some people would argue that they are. Um, so, you know, there's print, that's just to say that there's plenty of uh, sort of more not necessarily pro-China, but um, pro-engagement, you know, um, we and anti-Thai, <laughs> anti-DPP information out there in the media landscape. And not all of it is dismissed by um, many mainstream voters, you know, so there is definitely an audience for that. I think this media and... Uh, you know, the, the skepticism that a lot of people have about the media because they think that uh, the PRC is involved or uh, interfering, I think that's also evident in the, in the age, the, the generation gap in how people are viewing this election. So uh, young people are much, much, much less reliant on traditional media, so television and newspapers, and uh, they are much more reliant on social media, which has its own problems, but young people probably have a higher level of skepticism. They're probably sometimes skeptical of information that they should be trusting, um, but they're also skeptical of information that they probably shouldn't be trusting. So I think we also see that playing out in the generation gap. And what about actions that Beijing could take, not necessarily through the media, but other actions it could take to sway the vote here in its its favour or the KMT's favour, like possibly poaching more allied countries? Yeah, you know, I think that the atmosphere for that is really not advantageous at this moment because of the situation in Hong Kong. You know, um, in a more normal moment, in a more normal context, uh, some voters might say, oh, gosh, you know, we need a president who will not have this kind of um, we need a president who can work with the PRC, can deter the Beijing government from pressuring Taiwan 
further. But in in a moment where it seems as if uh, the Beijing government, you know, the, the one country, two systems is just every day the the bankruptcy of that proposal is reinforced for Taiwan people as they watch the news from Hong Kong. I think there's less enthusiasm for, um, you know, let's let's make sure that we are choosing someone who will be able to work with Beijing. It's kind of it's it's just not a it's just not a great context for that argument. So I'm not sure what Beijing could do at this point in terms of, uh, you know, policy moves that would help them get the outcome that they would prefer or an outcome that they would prefer in the election, short of finding a way to resolve the Hong Kong crisis that is congenial to, you know, uh, Taiwan people. And that, I think, is highly unlikely. That was me in conversation with Taiwan political expert Shelley Rigger. We have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, and it was a rather busy week here in Taiwan in regards to January's elections, and it began on Monday with Han Guoyu announcing that former Premier Simon Chung will be his running mate. Han told reporters that Chung was his top choice for the KMT's vice presidential candidate as he has close ties with grassroots communities, while Chung said that he expects the ticket to help Taiwan return to a better political environment, and as an independent, he has no sense of political colour and only sees right and wrong. Now, on Tuesday, Today, former Legislative Speaker Wang Jingping announced that he's no longer planning to run in January's election. Speaking at an impromptu press conference, Wang apologised too and expressed his thanks to his supporters, who had been anticipating his participation in the election since he first announced plans to run in March. And Wang said, although his withdrawal from the race is a regret, the decision does not mean an end to his political career, and he will use his many years of experience to serve society. Now, on Wednesday, People First Party Chairman James Sung announced his candidacy in January's presidential election, saying he believes it's time for Taiwan to move away from pan-blue and pan-green politics and find a middle road. Sung said that he's not entering the election for fame or self-benefit, but to fight for a win for Taiwan and a victory for the Republic of China. Sung has announced that Sandra Yu, the former chairwoman of the United Communications Group, will be his running mate, and there's also some talk that Honhai founder Terry Guo could be a PFP lawmaker at large. And it will be the fourth time that Sung will have sought the presidency, and as he ran as an independent candidate in 2000, and his capacity as PFP chairman in 2012 and again in 2016. And of course, he also ran for the vice presidency on a ticket with the KMT's Lian Jan in the 2004 election. So, Ross, there we go. The leaders of the parties that are running as presidents all made an announcement this week. There we go. So, start with Hang Yu and Simon Jung as his running mate. I think you hit the nail on the head, Gavin, when you said all made, or you could have just added the word all finally made. It's amazing how the these decisions get delayed until such a short number of days before the election. Han Yu has been the nominee of the Kuomintang uh, since he won the party prom- primary in, in June and then was confirmed by the, at the party congress or July. Uh, so he's had months to make this decision. Song Chuyu, James Song, you know, he, he knew that this election was coming for four years after he ran the last time. So he could have made this decision a lot earlier. Uh, Wang Jinping, the former 
legislative UN speaker. He kind of was in the Goldmindang primary. Then he was out of it, and he kept saying, I'm going to run until the end. Uh, but he really had no uh, uh, legal basis to be a candidate anymore when he didn't uh, join as a, a independent candidate seeking uh, to get on the ballot uh, by signatures on petitions the way Annette Liu, former vice president, tried to do. So so his announcement now is a bit silly. I mean, if he was serious about being a candidate, he would have, again, filed to run via the, the independent route. Uh, so it's nice to see that there's finally progress. One wonders why all of these candidates wait until so late. You know, it just shows um, how disorganized some of their campaigns are. And it's not necessarily the fault of the individual. We know that they're dealing with internal constituencies, especially at the Goldmindang. And there are other potential selections to be the vice president. James Song, uh, maybe not dealing with internal constituencies because he dominates the, the People First Party, but obviously he was dealing with the options or the potential for cooperation with Ko Wenja and, and Terry Go, Go Timing. So he had competing or other considerations as well. Uh, so uh, one could conclude by saying if this is the way that these candidates operate their attempts to be president, it's no surprise that Tsai Ing-wen is the incumbent has a large poll lead at this point. So, Jieting, two running mates and two presidential candidates. But we're still waiting, of course, for Tsai Ing-wen to announce whether or not William Lai will be her running mate. Yeah, I, I think the problem on the blue camp, um, you know, has basically been at the beginning of this election season, things were looking up for them, right? So coming off of the November local elections, you know, people on the blue cam and the KMT basically thought, you know, the wind is behind them. They are, they have the upper hand. So, you know, all the people with presidential ambitions, you know, all the sort of people that we've been watching for the last decade or two, you know, is coming out and trying to get a seat at the table. And then throughout basically much of 2019, um, we see basically the KMT, um, you know, one having their own sort of identity crisis as to, you know, how, you know, just exactly where they stand between Taiwan and China. And then you have sort of the more um, external kind of global factors of the PRC becoming the People's Republic of China, Beijing becoming much more just, um, you know, bare bones, aggressive, um, much more. There's so much more negative press coming out, um, you know, with regards to China and then obviously what's going on with Hong Kong as well. So um, I, I think it's, it, it's sort of this process of, in the beginning, everybody coming out, thinking that, you know, if they get to represent the KMT, there's a really good chance of winning, to basically now that, you know, all the people who kind of said they wanted to be president, had a, it's having a little bit of a hard time coming out and saying, well, I don't, you know, I, I lost the primary, I don't want to do it anymore. You know, they have to answer to their donors, their constituents, their, you know, people, their supporters. And, and so I think it's just this very messy and honestly, you know, very just rather annoying to watch um, kind of soap opera that we've been witnessing for the last uh, year, basically. Right. Of course, Ross, the soap opera, Simon Chung as a new member of the soap opera. To be fair to Hong Go Yu and to Simon Zhang, uh, he has the qualifications to be a very capable vice president. He did serve as Minister of Science and Technology, served briefly as premier during a, a very frankly difficult period because it was the period between when uh, Ma Ying-jeou's uh, or 
President Tsai was elected and Ma Ying-jeou was stepping down. Um, and, and unfortunately, the way the laws and the Constitution are written, it's a very long transition period. But the legislative UN um, had already taken its seats uh, with a DPP majority. So his his power uh, was very limited during those four months. And, and of course, popular opinion was largely against the outgoing government at that point. Uh, but he still had fairly high poll ratings, and he had a long career in the technology industry. Uh, so again, uh, you know, from from a competency perspective, this guy could be a, a minister or vice president or, or a premier under any any political party. Um, and one has to say, well, yeah, he's got he's got excellent qualifications as as a as an administrator, and, and actually, uh, as far as one of the key industries for Taiwan, the technology industry, one would have to say, great, the government needs more people with actual industry experience, because we know that both the Kuomintang and the uh, Minjindang DPP governments have been staffed up by way too many lawyers, and I could say that because I'm a lawyer, Gavin, and too many professors. I could say that because I do some teaching as well, Gavin. So there's too many lawyers and professors and not a lot of people with with real-world industry experience. So uh, to have someone like him on board in a governing team, again, um, you you can't really criticize it, but of course the the DPP is going to find ways to criticize him as well because, well, he's running with the Gomindang, so uh, they're, they're going to make him out to be uh, a very partisan person. They'll find things that he did as as Minister of Science and Technology or as Premier to say that he, he didn't fulfill his promises or some program didn't work out, but but that that's just uh, uh, expected partisan uh, arguments during the heat of an election campaign. And of course, James Sung also took someone from the business sector, that being Sandra Yu, the former chairwoman of the United Communications Group. Well, somebody with, with advertising industry, public relations kind of experience, it might help James Sung uh, as far as improving his image a bit, but uh, yeah, obviously he's not going to win the election. Uh, this is more about helping the, the PFP get seats in the legislative UN. And, and to be fair to James Sugg and the PFP, last time uh, he did get almost 13% of the presidential election vote, and the PFP won enough votes to, to get uh, uh, non constituency seats and to form a, a party caucus in the legislative UN. So for a small party, they didn't do as well as as the um, new power party, but they stuck around uh, through now several election cycles. So anything she could do, uh, not so much with the goal of helping the party win the presidency because they won't, uh, but anything she could do to help the PFP maintain a few seats in the in the legislative UN, uh, that that that's great for the PFP. Ryan Jetting, of course, there's been much talk here about James Sung's running. Could Stymie Hangor use chances of victory? Um, yeah, I think it's, uh, I mean, without looking closer at the polls, I think it's a little, um, I mean, I think it kind of cuts two different ways, right? Because as we've seen um, with uh, Han Guoyu and also more recently with the KMT at large party list, there is sort of this um, divide within the blue camp right now, right? So there's sort of the more intellectual, the more elite, the more... Um, you know, business side of the blue supporters who are rather unhappy with Han Guoyu's, the choice of Han Guoyu and with, you know, sort of where the party is going. And then you have Han Guoyu's, uh, you know, supporters and his fans saying, well, you know, this is, this is the true KMT. This is what KMT should all, you know, should always have been about. Um, and so is, is there, um, I mean, there, there were, I think, um, 
people within the KMT elite who were leaning on figures like Terry Guo, who, um, you know, they kind of saw as the more, um, you know, presentable or the more uh, the elite, elitist kind of face of the KMT. Are these votes going to go over to James Sung? I, um, I mean, that's one possibility. There's, um, you know, people who are, I'm sure there are people who said, well, you know, I will not vote for Tsai Ing-wen no matter what because I'm a diehard KMT fan, but I don't like Han Guo-yu either. James Sung might be a acceptable alternative. Um, but then again, James Sung is such a familiar face, right? And you know, I think people have... He's been in the presidential contention for you know how many, however many cycles that you mentioned, right? So I think people have. Um, it, it's very hard to have an open mind about him at this point. I I would say kind of um, that's sort of my guess. So I, um, I, I think it's a little hard to say right now what um, you know what's what James Sung's uh, variable is going to be in this particular presidential election cycle. Right, and if all that wasn't enough, the DPP and the KMT also released their lists for at-large legislative seats this week, and both selections proved somewhat controversial. Now, the DPP's Central Executive Committee announced an initial list of 15 legislature at-large nominees late Thursday evening. After five hours of negotiations, however, the five hours of negotiations apparently wasn't enough, as they came out shortly thereafter and included a total of 34 names as possible candidates. Now, the DPP's top at-large legislature nominees on the revised list a lawmaker who works for the DPP, Uyu Chin, now Green Citizens Action Alliance Deputy Secretary General Hong Shen Han and Social Democratic Party Governor also make up the top three. That's Fan Yun from the Social Democratic Party. Now the KMT released its candidates for the legislature at large seats the day before and all that turned into a rather big mess with basically the KMT's vice presidential candidate Simon Chung coming out and voicing his concern about the list describing it as disappointing. Now there was some kind of controversy over the list as party chairman Udini put his name on it as did well a Mr Cho E who's a rather controversial figure and the former presidential office spokesman Charles Chen was also included in the KMT's law Lawmaker at large list. So, Ross, the lawmaker at large list causing a bit of controversy there just because who was on them and who wasn't on them. Yeah, well, who or who uh, were were added off, I suppose one could say, given the the surprise that Wu Duni was on the list. Uh, I I actually. Putting aside what number on the list, because remember, Gavin, very important concept here is the safe list, or as they call it in Mandarin, the Anxuan Mingdan, because this is the party list, and they get in based on the number of at-large votes that, that when, when you know people are going to vote for their constituency, and they vote for the political party at-large. Uh, so we don't know for sure, and it's really hard to poll this, um, how many seats the Gomindang or the DPP or the smaller parties will will get off of the party list. Um, but But there's a safe... Number right. If you're on the top twelve for the Gomindang, fourteen. The candidate 14, said fourteen. Well, that's no. their estimate. They're being optimistic. We don't know for sure. Uh, but okay, maybe fourteen. So anyone one to fourteen is going to get get a seat. So whether it's your one or, or seven or fourteen, a lot of that's just kind of optics. So uh, Wu was on the safe list apparently, and people were surprised. But uh, I actually think uh, for for healthy political development. It's not bad for the party chairman to actually be 
in the legislative UN day to day. I've said for years, like James Song should have run for the legislative UN previously instead of just uh, you know enjoying uh, being a party chairman and criticizing uh, politics and policymaking from the sidelines. Uh, so uh, assuming Wudani is still the party chairman, which is not a guarantee, if they lose the presidency, he might get forced out as chairman. So maybe he's taking the trying to get a legislative seat. So he still has a paying job. Uh, but if he is still party chairman and he's also in the legislature, that's actually not a bad thing. The the criticism, which is a very valid criticism, is a lot of the people on the list have not necessarily been involved in day-to-day uh, politics for the party. Um, and a lot of people who are currently at-large legislators, and actually uh, some of them, one might say, have done a pretty good job are not on the list. And this has disappointed a lot of people. Some of them are, are younger. You know, the one name that's gotten a lot of media attention is Jason Xu Xuyuren. It was very high profile on marriage equality, very high profile on technology industry, uh, generally uh, a well-liked guy, unless you're, you're a DPP supporter. You don't like anyone from the Guomindang. Um But uh, he, he wasn't on the list. So some of this might change up until the filing deadline uh, for both parties, whether Guomindang, because there's a lot of controversy with the DPP's proposed list as well. So there'll probably be a lot of back and forth right up until the actual filing deadline. Um, and again, one wonders, you know, why did these party, both parties wait so long to, to come up with these lists? And then the, for the DPP, the controversy is bringing in some outsiders. And clearly, this is all about not splitting uh, the non-KMT vote. So whether whether it's someone who's driven by social policy issue, uh, uh, low, low-cost housing or health care uh, or identity issues, and we see that there's been some fracturing because some people think, well, the DPP hasn't been aggressive enough on Taiwan identity, hasn't been aggressive enough on, on giving everyone a free house. Uh, so, so you have a fracture or environmental protection or Whatever your, your issue is, uh, obviously the DPP doesn't want this to fracture because if it fractures, then it would only help the, the Guomindang be uh, po- potentially the party with the largest number of seats, but not necessarily majority. Uh, so the DPP is trying to co-opt all, all these non-DPP politicians to run on the DPP party list. And obviously, just like with the Guomindang, you, know, you got to put someone you push someone aside and, and often you're pushing aside people who've actually worked for the party. You say, wait, I, I've been busting my butt for the party, and now you're bringing in somebody who was actually, an hour ago, running for a different party. So, Jetting, what do you think about that point, the DPP opting in people from other parties, such as Fan Yun from the Social Democratic Party, to be on their lawmaker at large list? Yeah, I mean, I, I generally agree. I think it's, um, you know, it's a way to co-opt the smaller parties, and I think if we compare um, 2020 to 2016, right, the mood is somewhat different, right? And this is, you know, I think in, in Taiwanese, in the history of Taiwanese politics, we kind of see this, right? So the second term um, elections tend to be a little bit more focused on going back to the basics, going back to the core message, core values of the, of, you know, essentially the two large political camps along Taiwan's political divide, which is on China, right? Which is on Taiwan, on Taiwan identity, sure, but basically China policy, Right. And so I think it's um, in 2016 you have this sense of okay, well we know the sort of the old the, the my administration was going away. There's a new administration coming in town. Um, you know, everybody there, there's a lot more variable, but there's I think more optimism as to what could be done, right? So there's a lot of um, you know people are voting for the smaller parties. People are 
um, hopeful and optimistic for you know sort of new uh, fresh uh, fresh air, so to speak. This time around, I think um, on either on, on both sides, really, there's a sense of okay, we need to stand our ground. This is a defensive battle. We're fighting a defensive stance, right? And so I think there is a little bit of this sense of okay, we're going. We need to shore up our own defenses. And in this case, um, I hear just um, through um, social media chatter that there's um, you know people are talking more about. Um, putting their votes, their party votes on the DPP and not splitting the non-KMT votes among all the different smaller parties, even though, you know, they may be um, friendly allies to the DPP. But I think right now, you know, there's much more of a sense of urgency. Okay, we need to keep the DPP um, legislative majority. So, you know, don't waste your vote on smaller parties that may not even make it to the legislature. Um, you know, put all of your eggs into the DPP. And I think it's the same thing going on on the KMT side as well. And that's why you see this um, much backlash against the party list, right? Because um, other than the KMT, I think there's not much of an alternative right now, right? And so that's, um, I think that's sort of the mood that we're going, we're operating in right now. Um, you know, taking in Sunry and taking in, you know, all these other um, traditional allies, so to speak, but then, you know, kind of putting them under the DPP. Um, party list really signals this, okay, we need to shore up our defenses. Everybody needs to, you know, come back to the main headquarters. Everybody needs to come back to the camp, basically. Um, and so I think that's the, this is the mood that we're operating in right now. Right, and we'll leave it there on shoring up defences this week here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Ross Feingold. Have a great weekend. And on the telephone by Jieting Ye. Have a great weekend. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.